You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Hello, Michael. Hello, Andre. <laughs> yeah, I, you know what? Um, I'm taking a look at what we've done this year. We're a third through the 2023 version of Two Guys Talking Wine. And we, and we have not really uh, even hit upon our uh, set upon high notes, such as Italy and Chardonnay yet. But those are coming. No, we're definitely working on, and and we um, we appreciate the response from we appreciate the response from agents who have reached out to us. But there will be a more formal pitch going out. But the thing is, um, I think the podcast is sounding better than ever. I, I'm enjoying uh, the podcast, and I think I think we're you know coming from the guy who's behind the microphone. I guess we better enjoy it. Um, but. Uh, it's just that uh, you, you you set these lofty goals for yourself, thinking that that you're going to do these things. Yeah, and and then you suddenly realize well, it's going to take a little longer. So I think our Chardonnay in Ita- Italy may I was going to say Italia is going to probably bleed into uh, well, I mean, 2024 as well. I mean that's it though. It's it's talking <laughs> about like how we've planned things. I think switching to biweekly. Um, I don't know if anyone's missing our voices every week. Um, but you know we're like orange juice now. We're concentrated, so it's better quality. How long have you been working on that one? Oh, I don't know, but my head hurts from it. Um, okay, but that being said, if you're listening to this podcast, we're probably well into the warm weather. But the day that we're recording this podcast, this is kind of a um, extended teaser because Michael and I are both getting ready to do a bit of wine travel, and we are definitely going to unpack our trips on this podcast. But We've seen over the years, it's really hard to record while we're traveling, so it's better to come back and do it. Uh, we've got some great interviews. You've obviously heard um, the excellent interview with Mission Hill, which I'm still losing my mind over that we've got Burgundian Chardonnay from that hot climate. I knew you were going to like that Chardonnay. It's I unreal. Knew, I just knew it it's when, unreal. I, t- when and, I tasted it. It's, and it's not just like a label, label, label thing. Like I went into that... Uh, and, and now that Corey's not here and now that, that, that nobody else is here, like as a journalist, I can just say I was anticipating disappointment. Um, I know that you, you, I think you look at British Columbia Chardonnay with that kind of, um, outlook because of. I've had my heart broken many times. Yeah. Because of the tasting we did with, uh, with Christine, our, our friend, girl gone grape. And, um, Although you disappointed her too, I know it's not hilarious. Like, like because Christine and I bonded in Italy in Abruzzo over Chardonnay of all things. So I think we both had the bar set a little too high for ourselves. But anyway, how, um, how do you bond in Abruzzo over Chardonnay? I have no idea. I, oh, I think I, I think this was still like because I have my Instagram account Captain Chardonnay that I don't do a lot with. That everyone listening to this podcast that has followed me, I really appreciate. But but, but did you find Chardonnay in Abruzzo? I did. Oh. Um, that's an oddity i have a bottle of it in the cellar it's not ready yet and i'm going to unleash it probably in three years where it's just going to be like hey remember this anyways so you know it's been a while since we've done one of these shooting the um it podcast shitting the poop yeah okay that um and we thought we would review like the 2020 reserve wines from Ontario are starting to come out. So yeah. we have a table in front of us of a bunch of 2020s. And I think we should talk a little bit about what we're looking forward to because like you're at my house. It is April 14th. It's 25 degrees. Yeah, it was 33 on the dash of the Volkswagen today wow. while I was out in the city. And um, you're getting ready to do some travel. So 
I'm going to taste the wine that we have in our glass. It's the 2020 Reserve Meritage from Cassaba. Um, I haven't been updating AndreWineReview.ca very diligently, but I do have a few wineries that I need to profile on there, and Cassaba is one of them. Uh, I think this is the first hot vintage that Vadim has worked on his own and not under John. Yep. So Vadim is now flying solo on the hot vintages, and let's see what this wine tastes like, but uh, where are you going? Oh, jumping! I'm uh, I'm off to uh, I I can't I, you know I guess there are times when you really really feel blessed and this is this is one of these moments um, because uh, I just kept getting invites into my inbox and I kept saying yeah I'll, I'd love to go and then I didn't realize that I was going for 28 days so uh, I'm I'm off to uh, Sagrantino which is in uh, or Montefalco which is in Umbria and from there. Uh, I, I head to Loire Valley uh, for my second uh, jaunt out there, which is which is really nice. Uh, what I understand about the Loire uh, trips is that they get you in three different regions over three years to see how things go there. Uh, and then there's um, uh, a trip over to uh, Languedoc. And I was I'm in Languedoc gonna, in 2019. And then I'm going to end in uh, Provence, which makes sense. You know, a little bit of rosé report coming out. I think that's perfect. Like, that's how you're going to be kicking off your kicking off your spring. Yeah. So rosé report, which uh, which at the time this podcast gets released, should be a few weeks away. I think. Hopefully, you get out a bit sooner this year. Last year it was pretty late in the summer, but I know you work no, your ass off. It's, it's July. It's the July first week that it comes out. Come on, rosé season starts May 25th. Uh, theoretically, but you gotta, you know, let the wineries come up with wines. You know, I, if, if I were to be honest with you, if I were to start the rose, if I were to have the rosé report out, let's say the first week in June, I probably wouldn't have as many rosés. I would probably lose, uh, close to half. I taste a lot of them near the end, like a lot. You know, I, I think that's one of the things where, like for the ADX wine company, we don't rush when pigs fly. But it is made with the goal of having it ready for the spring. And I think it's just the interesting thing. And if you're working for a winery, because I know a lot of people who work for wineries do this, and I may be giving you a little bit of our competitive edge on this, but sommeliers start thinking about their spring lists in February, March. So you need to have a product ready and like ready to rock by May. And I mean, if you do make your rosé from the 2022 vintage, having it ready for March it is a challenge. Like we work hard with Adam and I know Adam always wants to let the wines go a little bit longer in the cellar, but I mean, I stand by our product. But you, you just said they have to be ready to rock by May. But that's it though. Right? So you so bottle it in I've... March, you bottle it in March, you get the samples into the restaurants and they start coming out of bottle shock in May. So they're ready to rock. And that's, that's when people want me to taste. Why do they want me to taste the rosés in bottle shock, right? I'm excited for you to go to, go to Languedoc. Uh, like the whole south part of France is just really beautiful, and I kind of feel like Languedoc, Languedoc now is what Beaujolais was like 15 years ago. Okay, you know it's sort of the region that people are jumping up and and and, and you know even having Gerard Bertrand there, where I think I compare a lot of what Gerard Gerard Bertrand is doing to what George Dubuff did in Beaujolais. I think the only difference is, um, I think George Dubuff took the market for granted. And felt that he had a recipe for printing money and took the um, the consumer for granted. And the quality of the product suffered. And there was a lot of subpar Dubuff Beaujolais that ended up on the market. And, you know, the fact that he's still a darling on the shelf of the LCBO is a bit of an embarrassment. Although I have had some better crew 
I've had, I've tried a couple, yeah, I've had a couple of crews that were, were good. I remember the, the, the regular stuff is, is like, I'm never drinking Beaujolais again. Yeah. Um, but like tasting Gerard Bertrand, um, and, and Bertrand doesn't pay us to say this though. I think that they're setting the foundation for a better recipe for success. Uh, yeah. So I, so I see where you're going with that. And I, and I, I still think we should, we should get our rear ends over to uh, Beaujolais. So if Beaujolais is listening, um, be really nice to get us there. We'd, we, I know the, the wines would, would have <laughs> a, a shameless. really fair shake, uh, especially for myself, liking Gamay and all that. And uh, I understand the food's pretty good, too. So Food's excellent. Um, my most memorable meal I think I've ever had in France, it, it, it's no longer called this, but was at a bar close to Côte de Bruy um, called Le Savannah, where, like, we walked into this place, we walked into the town. It was, like, a little village where there were two restaurants, and the french restaurants they put the menu outside like similar on like queen street in yeah. toronto where you can decide where you want to eat and the nicer restaurant with the white tablecloths my wife and i looked at the menu and we were just like we don't want to eat anything on the menu so we were around the corner to like this little crappy hole in the wall bar and uh, i don't know you, you you wouldn't have experienced this on a press trip because they wouldn't take you necessarily to a place like this a crappy hole in the wall bar yeah, but like, so what we call a bistro in North America is generally a little bit fancier. Like, it's not white tablecloth fancy, which is like, oh, let's go to the bistro for, for brunch, Michael. Like, we're going to the bistro, right? Yeah. But like in France, a, a bistro, you walk in and there's no printed menu. Uh, they'll have either a blackboard up behind the bar with like two choices, like A or B. The one we went to, La Savannah, it was literally like a handwritten menu where. I'm pretty fluent in French cooking, and my wife is a French-trained pastry chef. We're both pretty fluent in the French world of cuisine. So, when you walked around the corner, was it was it owned by the same? No, completely different. And like it was, it was the local like it was like Moe's Tavern. And when we walked in, like you could smell the smoke of the cigarette of the owner that they had just put out before they they turned the open sign on. the The owner of the bar's dog, this little like. Uh, you know, like Yorkie Poo or something, like a big floofy ball with curly hair, went from table to table to greet all the guests. I had to Google Translate the handwritten menu that the the bartender gave us. And uh, I had a, a, a deer stew. My wife had uh, a monkfish terrine and a Beaujolais sausage. And it was just like, it was as authentic as you could get. Well, I was, the last time I was in Florence, I went to, and I, I, I guess they're not pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. They told everybody if you were when you were sitting there, but it was called the uh, the, the Black Boar, mm-hmm. um, and it was really a, a, a nice, uh, inexpensive um, uh, restaurant um, that that served really great food. Yeah, and then uh, when we finished, they said, "Oh, if you want an after dinner drink." You could head to the go, go through the kitchen and go into the bar, which is attached to their fine dining restaurant. Yeah. So they have the same kitchen doing fine dining as well as, um, the, you know the 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 people's meal, let's say. And uh, it was really interesting to see. And they probably had some of the same stuff on the menu. And on one menu you were paying A twenty euros, more. and the other one you're paying seven. All right, so. you've got your notepad out. I do. Um, I've taken a few sips of this wine. It's it is lovely. Um, I'm still a bit su- a bit surprised, but actually, I'm a little disappointed that this is what I opened for you because I think the 2020 Cabernet Franc, the Reserve Cab Franc from Cassaba, 
is possibly the best Cabernet Franc I've had from Ontario. Really? Wow, that's a yeah. Like it moved me. It moved me right to my core. And then when I talked to Vadim about the winemaking, I was a little surprised to hear about use of American oak on some of this. Where tasting this Meritage, I think the American oak is a little bit more um, overt. Like it's definitely out there. There's some really strong. Um, wood spice, like not fruit spice. There's it's, definitely vanilla. The it's smooth. It's it's silky. It's got a peppery touch to it. Um, I like the wine. Yeah. Uh, I'm thumbs up on it. If that's what we're doing, I'm thumbs up on it too. If we want to go, if we want to go scores for me, it's a hard four star. Um, I think this belongs in the lineup of the 2020s from Cassava, but I, I do think that your money is better served with the Cabernet Franc. I, I would be just slightly below you at three and a half plus, but uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. it's it's a it's a yeah, it's it's a nice, smooth, easy drinking wine. Um, I would have ex- I want to expect more from a reserve. I think just a little bit. I, I think that's actually a fair assessment of this wine, and this is one of these things where, like, I know we're not talking about it, but once again, the Cabernet Franc. Um, I think the Cabernet Franc has what you're looking for. All right, here's our next one. Speaking of Cabernet Franc, um, the lineup of 2020s from Chateau des Charmes. Uh, I've tasted this wine, so I'm not going to do a lot of talking because I don't want to lead you along, but I'll, I'll tell you what my initial impressions were when we got the sample sent to us from Chateau des Charmes. Was, so this is a 2020 hot vintage. Yep. Um, not unsurprising to see 13.5%, 14, 14.5% from Niagara. St. David's Bench. Hotter Appalachian, one of the hottest Appalachians in the Niagara region. I would expect this to be 14, 14.5%. It's 12.5%. Yeah. So. Is that picking early, do you think? We could talk to to Amelie about that. But, I mean, that's the thing, though, is I'm on the nose of this. There's nothing underripe about it. Nope, it's not underripe at all. It, like it's it's clearly it's clearly beautiful vineyard management on the nose. Yeah, this one's clean. See, I like this a little bit more than the cassaba. Um, yeah, this is the anti Parker. Like this is elegant. Mm-hmm. This is elegant AF. It's got all the elements that um, that I think you should have in a cab franc. It's got that lovely raspberry note. Yep. Um, it's got savory elements, but it's more like herb garden than it is like pyre. Like uh, I shouldn't say pyrazine. Sorry. Obviously, this is pyrazine, but like it's not bell pepper. It's more like savory. It might be tarragon. It's just like it smells like there's a fresh herb garden planted next to a bush of raspberries. There, there is a slight tobacco note, which is what I expect from Cabernet Franc. It's not overly fruity. Uh, I find it but, quite fruity. But the nice raspberry, uh, it, it, it's got that kick of raspberry in there. A little bit of, uh, a little bit of damson plum, maybe. Gamson plum? Damson. Damson? What's a damson plum? It's a kind of plum. I don't know what a damson plum is. Well, good God, man. I thought you were married to a pastry chef. Should well, you my not pastry have chef wife has never served me a damn she's been, plum. She's feeding me lines as I go here now about you. Yeah, she's sitting quietly beside us yeah, with just our baby. Making uh, making you know, ma- making notes about here, this is what a damson plum is. Also, um... And, baby, I've now, and I've now been told that you've had a damson plum. So, damn, son, where's that plum? So, baby Spencer's three months old and still hasn't had her first taste of wine yet. So, I think I'm 
actually doing the responsible parenting thing uh, correctly. She's she's showing her the glass. That's yes, what she yes. Anya is Anya is swirling her little taste of the 2020 Cabernet Franc in front of Spencer, and and she is following the wine glass. Yeah, so that's that's quite an el- when an elegant uh, Cabernet Franc from a 2020 vintage. I guess I would have expected more from the 2020 vintage, a little more power, but. Uh, that you show a little restraint on that is probably uh, is probably what people are not expecting. I have a bottle in my cellar, and I'll see. It's not ready to drink, but I remember my first trip to Bordeaux in 2014 with Anya, where we visited Chateau La Rose, and Chateau La Rose with a Z. It's in Saint Emilion. It's a Grand Cru Classé. It's not Premier Grand Cru Classé, but it's Grand Cru Classé, and. Out of all the Grand Cru Classe wineries in Saint-Emilion, the wines are some of the most affordable. And when I met the owner, Guy Meslin, um, I asked him, like, why aren't your wines more expensive? And he was just like, Robert Parker doesn't like my wines. And we went and we tasted these wines, and it actually really vividly reminds me of this Cabernet Franc from Chateau de Charme. Because they were soft, they were restrained, they were elegant, they weren't over-extracted, they weren't tannic AF to use that reference again because we're not swearing on the podcast anymore. The, the, but if you get a chance to try the Chateau La Rose wines, and if you're listening to this podcast and you want to hear what Bordeaux and feel what Bordeaux tastes like without the influence of Robert Parker, Chateau La Rose is the place to do it. And I'm pleased to see Amelie do that with this this wine. Yeah, it is It is quite an interesting wine to uh, to be doing. So a thumbs up, obviously, from, from me on that one. So now this is the big oh, gun. Uh, let's go. Let's go to the stars. Um, that Cab Franc for me is a four plus. Four plus, exactly. Yeah, yep, that's where I was. So now we're uh, we're on to the big gun. Like this Man, is it. And this is the thing is I was actually getting ready to taste this one. This is the Eculus. Sorry, I keep. I, I'm actually stepping on you on this podcast. My goodness. But I, I've been waiting to open this one because I've gone through the lineup of the Chateau de Charme wines, and I was saving this one for last, largely because I've seen um, our friend Dean Tudor. Yep. Dean Tudor gave this a very high score, and uh, Rick Vansicle also gave this a very high score. So do you know the, uh, uh, on the back label, do you know what, what's dominating here? All right. Uh, you know what? Uh, it's been a while since we've done Stump the Chump, so uh, let's see if we can if we can blind this, but it's it's three grapes. It's Cab So It always is, yeah. Cab Franc and Merlot, uh, 18 months in... The best French oak barrels. So, if if I was going to thirteen percent alcohol on this, if I was going to just um, uh, come out of the gate without uh, without saying anything, without a tasting, sorry, uh, I would probably go because of the vintage. You would go Cab Sauve dominant, just because you don't, you know, in twenty twenty, it would be the year that you, that you would go Cab Sauve dominant because it's like watching Rain Man. <laughs> Because you you know you wouldn't get great Cabernet Sauvignon every year, and and in a great year such as twenty twenty, you would you know lead with with an all star grape. That would be my thought. So before even tasting it, yeah, that's cool. Uh, the nose on this is also like it's it's that restraint that we're seeing from the Cabernet Franc. So that trend is continued. It's not like this wine is is balls to the wall, and the other twenty twenties from Chateau de Charme are over the top. Again, this is. As you said, this has got that restraint note to it. It's it's not um, as ballsy as as the cassava, let's say. Yeah, the cassava. The cassava is uh, it's big dick energy. 
if that's what you want to call it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's the that's the Pete Davidson of the lineup. <laughs> and uh, you know, the other ones are are more Paul I'm, Rudd. I'm sure, Paul Rudd. So I, I think I, I think that's a good a good uh, a good analogy. Wait, but I mean, I got your cherry. I got the smoke. It's lots the of cherry. Elements. Lots. It's it's cherry, raspberry, cranberry on the nose. The the smoke notes are buried under it, though. This is glorious. This is oh you you gulp that back. You gulp so, that back. So what I what I didn't expect, I think. Um, and there's, and there, I don't, I don't, not getting too much tannin grip out but, of this because the tannins are like short. Yeah, they're and, present, but they're short and well structured. So, I, I, think, I, I don't know, and and I guess I, you'd have to see how long this would age for. I think this is the most accessible Eculus that I have tasted ever. I would agree with that, but also I think. What we're seeing in 2020, and um, even though the cassava Meritage is a very different wine from this, um, I think from 2012 and 2016, we had overzealous and excited winemakers to work with fruit from such a hot vintage that things were overextracted, um, tannins fell apart, you were missing acidity that you need for wines to be, uh, you know, sellable for that really long time. Um, I think both the Reserve Meritage from Cassaba, the 2020 Cab Franc, and the Eculus, I think we're looking at a solid decade before it really moves to secondary tertiary. I don't think we're at the California or Bordeaux level of cellaring where like, oh my god, this Eculus will be good in 40 years. But I think a decade from now, this one will reward you. I think it'd, I think well. it'd be an exciting wine to see. Um, I, I, think, I think if it were someone like you, Michael, or, or someone like, like Maroki, who really loves old old dirty baseball glove leather bound books like 15 20 years you'll get to that i i think it i think it comes that way sooner think so yeah i think it does but they get a couple bottles but i mean i think it's i think it's a very uh exciting wine now and as i said probably the most accessible eculus right out of the gate thumbs up i'm a thumbs up uh stars uh four plus i'm four and a half on it I can see you going on. You were you were talking about how glorious it was. I just don't think it has the longevity that. And I, I I'm happy to eat my words if, if oh, it comes. Oh, I, to- I I would actually love to revisit this in a decade with you to see if I'm eating eating my words. But it's a thing where I, I was actually reflecting on this earlier. Like I've been doing this since 2010. So well, like, I'm almost a decade before that. So and that's it. So like we've got a good like almost half century between the two of us but like i still feel like i'm learning about the cellarability of wines like the we talked about the tasting with christine last year where i had my heart broken by these ontario chardonnays that i thought would age well but hadn't but on the other hand like um you know i recently had a chance to taste a 2007 um cab merlot from the speck brothers at an event and it was like it was baseball glove, like it was the leather bound book that I know you would have enjoyed, but it wasn't a dead wine by any any stretch of the imagination. It just wasn't to my taste. But some of those old uh, Henry Pelhams are are really 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 good. I I remember, I, sitting, still... I remember sitting. I get together with uh, Daniel Speck uh, probably once a year for a little uh, a lunch uh, tasting through some of the portfolio, and then sometimes he surprises me with something out of the cellar, 
And uh, I don't think he's ever pulled anything out that we've both gone, that's terrible. <laughs> you know, I still think that Henry Pelham is one of the most underrated wineries in the province. And it's actually one of the things that frustrates me about what's happening in restaurants in Toronto. And, I, and I'm trying to be very careful because the people that I'm doing business with, with the ADX Wine Company, I think are a little more open-minded than a lot. But I think there's an obsession with sommeliers to have brands that don't exist on the shelves of the LCBO. And I think it's a bit problematic because Henry and Pelham having their back noir on the shelf of the LCBO is vitally important for the wine industry that people grab that bottle but that's not the best wine that Henry Pelham makes. They're making outstanding Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, and Cab Merlot. At all price points. At all price points. And I think these wines get regularly overlooked because of that LCBO uh, taint. I'm using that in air quotes for lack of a better term. And I know we're critical of the LCBO, but it's the only place to sell wine. And when you want to grow to a certain point, like Henry Pelham employs a hell of a lot of people. Look, I, And rent. Look, um, I know there are there are people because I remember posting on Facebook one day uh, about you know tell us why you do and do not like the LCBO. Uh, I got a ton of people who said they like the LCBO, and I got a ton of people who said they did not like the LCBO. Uh, it was interesting how many people who said they liked the LCBO that the people who didn't like the LCBO jumped on uh, to you know, tell the them people, why the they people- shouldn't. Okay. Like the LCBO. The, the people who love... It's, it's a tough conversation to have because um, the LCBO is a pleasant shopping experience. The stores are nice. I like setting foot in an LCBO because I, I like the experience of shopping in there. Uh, I like the LCBO because if I am looking for a specific wine, I know that it is going to be at each and every store. But, you know, once you exit... Ontario, like that's the problem. That's the is whole point. We have Stockholm syndrome with the LCBO. Correct. You go to the states, you go to Total Wine, you go to even go to Saskatchewan, go to Metro Liquor, you go to Europe, like where you and I are, are heading to. Yeah. And I bought a bottle of Nicholas Fayet uh, champagne, and I know taxes, I know Exceller, I know the complications, but I spent like twenty three dollars Canadian for the Nicholas Fayet that I spent fifty five dollars for here. And I know that the taxes pay for our health care and stuff, but it's just like, uh. well, it's it, it, it and and it's it is quite ridiculous. And and I spoke to you earlier this week about a problem that I ended up having because of our liquor oh, monopoly. Hang on, I you had, know what? I don't want to bury the lead because we have two more wines to get through, and we've been talking for almost a half hour. I would. We said we weren't going to talk about it, but I think we should like great and powerful Oz this go behind the curtain and just talk about the ridiculous stuff that we need to deal with as journalists that aren't being paid to do this minus our Patreon supporters which we greatly appreciate patreon.com slash two guys talking wine in your glass right now oh you want me to talk about that first is the 2020 Rebel Chardonnay from 16 Mile you know like full disclosure I have a close relationship with the people who run 16 Mile I've been a long fan of their wines Um, I sent everybody their Frankly, the price-to-value quotient is off the charts. And 2020 was a banner vintage. So, Michael, you and I are getting like super sneaky-peaky here because they're still rolling through their 2018s. Um, the business model at 16 Mile is they want to be able to 
have people find their favorite wine and still come back and rebuy it. So they hold on to their back vintages. So it's going to be a little while before the 2020s are released. That's too bad because I, I think this, this... I know, smelling it? Like this... this... So, so this is the Rebel. This is their entry level. This should be maybe 22 or 24 bucks a bottle. To, I don't see being north of that. To, to me, it's, it's, a, it's a fun little wine. Like it's got um, you know some sweet vanilla notes to it. It's got some. Oh, it smells like creamsicle. Uh, a peachy apple, a peachy applesauce. That's what I, I got on the palate. It's fruit forward. It's it's friendly. It's it's got a lot going for it. Um, you know, that's kind of a tons, pad- of, tons of the the baking spice. Like it's um, allspice, nutmeg, cinnamon in that order. Um, on the nose, on the palate. Uh, so like I'm getting a hint of like a hint of oxidated note on it, but I think the fact that it's sealed under this beautiful closure, it is nice. Yeah, well, it's a screw cap. It's a Stelvin. Yeah. So, but I mean, that's it. Where it'd, it'd be interesting to taste it through the evening and see if that blows off. Um, oh, I'm I'm kind of okay with it because you talk about uh, like peach and apple puree, applesauce. Like I actually don't mind. It's not. It doesn't smell full on like bruised fruit. It's just it's got hints no, it's, of that making it interesting. It's 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 a friendly, easygoing uh, sipper. Uh, so uh, I I I give it a four stars. It's, a four. Uh, it's it's going to make a lot of friends. Uh, I just think they should be selling it sooner rather than later. I don't think it. Uh, I don't think you have, it's, to, you have to remember our tasting with Christine though that the and if you go back to the episode from last year, the best wine of that night was a twenty fifteen. Civility Chardonnay from Ontario that was tasted in 2022. The wines from 16 Mile are made to age. Could be. I think the Rebel a little bit less. Civility is the is the higher end. Yeah, th- this will this, be on the this this. Yeah, I, th- I, I think, think you, I think you just selfishly want it on the market now because it's no, drinking no, I, great. I, I think it. I think it. You know, it's it's got that fruit core that I think a really good, pleasant summer Chardonnay should have, and that's and that's what it has. So that's what I'm saying. Um, so well, back yeah. back to back to our our topic on uh, yeah yeah um, of the things that so we're working, I, we're working on so you I, and I are working on trying to learn more about Italy this summer. You've made some contacts with people correct. in Italy who so are trying I, to so, help us on this. So I guess what has what has happened is I finally got some emails, um, and I guess the wineries just decided to send me stuff directly. Yep, and uh, they were stopped obviously at the border, and lo and behold. Uh, you know, it's a sample. It says right on the label for a sample. And, I don't know if and you're then telling the story completely clear enough. And then the lady phones me up from UPS or whoever it's coming in, and she says, "Did you order wine?" I said, "I did not order wine. I am a wine writer. It sounds like somebody is sending me some wine. Well, you're going to have to pay X number of dollars to get it in. What are the X number of dollars? Well, the the minimum she said that I would have to pay, and again. I guess, you know, the LCBO takes control of it. They put their mark up on it. She said the minimum, the minimum that I would have to pay. Because I said, okay, what does, it co- what does it cost, let's say, if I was an agent? Again, she wouldn't be, she couldn't tell me because there are so many fluctuating reasons and, and rates. But she said the minimum you're going to pay is $30. The minimum for a sample bottle, which I would say more than three quarters of that goes down the sink. Yeah, but I mean they they don't know that it's it's also it's it's something that I've been talking about on the radio show where like I refer to it as the evils of alcohol. Um, 
I said earlier in this podcast, I don't mind paying high taxes on wine if it means that we get better health care, better roads, this and that. But frankly, I don't think we're seeing that right now. I think there's a lack of accountability in government. But I mean, I work for the National Post. I also work for Canada Land. So I'm on both sides of the political spectrum. But follow my work at those other outlets if you want to hear what I really think. Anyways, it's these are agricultural products. This, like if we were olive oil reviewers, we wouldn't have to pay to Correct. get samples sent to cool. us from Greece, from Chile, from Australia. We could get olive oils from around the world well, I had, and not I, have to deal with this garbage. I, I had somebody ask me, well, what happens if uh, if somebody wanted to send you something for like a stereo equipment? Yeah, we wouldn't have to pay for it. It would be marked a sample. It would be on the import form as $0. It's like, it's still just a a fundamental problematic disconnect with society that you know alcohol is a drug i get it but at the same time it is such a normalized part of culture it's a normalized part of the european meal it's a part of the diet like i i get all this but it's it is unnecessarily difficult because of this hundred year old bureaucracy yeah and and I was um, and so what ended up happening with this wine is it went back to Italy or it was destroyed one of those two yep because they refused to let it in um, and as I said thirty dollar minimum for me to sample a wine a minimum before I, anything else uh, happens so it could have been up to fifty a hundred dollars just to get a sample to me it's I, it was just one of those moments where I was like I can't believe I live in this province <laughs> yeah. And I guess it's you know what we're lucky that that, that we get people who want to send yeah, us wine. Yeah, we are. Wine. I mean, that's it. We, we, Let's okay. be honest. But so 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 <laughs> I guess the full disclosure: we actually didn't want to broach this topic on the podcast because we realized it might sound a little like we're whinging about how hard it is to be a wine writer. But like, but here's the reality: but, like, we don't make a ton of money doing this. Like, selling a wine column doesn't make you a lot of money. Michael and I do this because we love the industry. We look, do- I, I I have friends in Michigan and and all over the states that. That you know, wine goes to them. If you're living in 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 Europe, uh, in the UK, I have friends in the UK, and I'm always seeing and I and I uh, the, all the wines that that show up at their door from different countries, and I'm like, how did you get that? Oh, it was sent to me by the winery. Yeah, right. Because they but know I, it's I'm a even, sample. It's even, not like you're getting a case of it. It's not like I'm just going to resell it. But the thing is, <clears> it, 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 it's a problem on both sides as well. Like, I, through my travel, I think anyone listening to this podcast has noticed we are trying to get a more international feel to this. We're trying to bring more interesting guests to the podcast, and we're trying to connect with other podcasters elsewhere. If I wanted to send a bottle of When Pigs Fly to Paul K in California, or to the Connected Table uh, in Louisiana, or wherever those nomads are right now. Exactly, nomads um, is right. You know, I can't just go to UPS and be like, here, give me the form to fill out. Like, this bottle of wine has $0 value. I want to send this Ontario wine as outreach to help spread the word of Ontario wine to other journalists outside of our jurisdiction. I can't do it. Like, it's it, it's not, like, there's no simple way to do it. It's, it's a huge problem. And, you know, I, I, the last thing I'll say about this, and this goes for consumers as well, uh, we, uh, with all of us out there, you do any kind of travel. You go to a winery, and I, I experienced this in in New Zealand. I experienced it in in uh, in Monterey when I was there. I've experienced it also in in various places in Italy, in 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 Italy and Europe. 
when they say, "Oh, we ship anywhere in the world," and then Except you say, Canada. "and then you say, I'm from Canada," and they immediately go, not "But there. not there." Yep. And and that's that's almost criminal. It, it, it's a thing though where I know I've said it three times now on this podcast. I don't care about the taxes, but like, let's make it easy. You know what? Let, 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 let's make it where it's just like, okay, cool. Bottle X from Italy that even maybe gifted to us is worth 10 euros. Let's tax it at 20%. I don't mind if that's going to help me do my job, but like, make it reasonable, make it transparent, make it black and white. I mean, I do mind a little bit. I mind a little bit, like it's a tool of the trade. Anyways. I, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just saying what we what we what we go through to get a sample bottle. The consumer goes through even more because they end up somewhere, and they and I don't know how many times because I also do wine tours for Niagara Vintage Wine Tours. I see people from all over the world, and it's amazing how Canadians tell me, and from all over Canada as well, uh, t- tell me the story about how they went somewhere, tried to. Uh, loved the wine, wanted to get it, would buy it, and then by the time it got to our shores, it was prohibitive for them to almost get it across the border, and they couldn't believe how much it was to get it. Um, All right. Because people don't understand what it's going to cost when it gets it. They think it's so easy to just bring in a case of wine. And, and frankly, frankly, it should be. Like I said, like make it easy. Um, just like Make it make it a box you got to check off and, and you know, let people know. Like make it transparent. Your twenty year old bottle of wine that you loved, uh, you know, in 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 France. By the time it gets to our shores and you get to the to to the to the border patrol or whatever the hell it is, UPS takes their their cut and the Alcibiade takes their cut. You realize that you're paying seventy five to a hundred dollars for that bottle, and you're like, why did I do this? Yep. And then they'll either either you pay the twelve hundred dollars to liberate your case of wine, yep. or you let it get destroyed and you paid the winery for it. Yeah. Anyways, we are now on to the twenty twenty civility uh, single vineyard Creek Shores. Um, this is the second time I'm saying this on this podcast. I disclosed my relationship to the winery earlier, but this is glorious. I can see why you like this wine. Uh, I. I'm, I'm, I lean a little bit more towards the Rebel. Okay, why? Um, just because of its its fruitiness factor. This has got a lot of fruit to it. It leans more a little apple and pineapple than it does to the peachy section. Um, oh, uh, this is this is my. But this has got butterscotch and yes. sweet buttery vanillas. It's my third time tasting this wine. Um, do you remember Five Alive? Yeah, I do. It was that citrusy uh, beverage. This tastes like five alive. With five different citrus fruits in yeah, it. Yeah, it tastes like five alive. Yeah, I can see where you're going with that. There's a, there's a nice citrusy Lime, note orange, to it. Lime, orange, lemon, grapefruit, uh, tangerine. I just, I just kind of lean a little bit towards the Rebel because of its fresh and, and fruitiness. But I, I, again, have no problem with either one of these wines. And I, I give the civility a four. I'm at four and a half on the civility. Yeah, but it's Chardonnay. Uh, no, 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 no. I, okay. All all kidding aside, I think it's got a complexity that the Rebel is missing. This is a Vain de Gout. Like, it's a cellarable wine. I think it's got a good five to seven. I'm now learning from you and paying attention to you, Michael. Oh, my goodness. Which, which doesn't happen often. But I think in five to seven years, this is going to become even more I think you'd be. Ha- I think you'd be very happy in about uh, 2027. 
Yep, like, I, I think agree. I think be very happy if it, if you made it to twenty thirty and you still had a bottle of that. Uh, it, it's touch and go. It's touch and go. You, though. you might. That being said, though, we might. had the, we had the twenty fifteen civility that we tasted with Christine in twenty twenty two that was still not quite at its peak yet. But twenty fifteen, little cooler than twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. This this has a great acid to it. Yes, I got that. But I I still think you're looking at a at a a nice four year window. 2027 of drinking this wine and being very happy in 2027 2030 i think you're stretching it um you know really aged chardonnay lovers may dig into that yeah uh i'm not an aged chardonnay for the record i'm not an aged chardonnay lover and i and i and i am not either because i've not tasted too many aged chardonnays that i was totally you know balls to the wall about you know i love that we've finally done like a lineup and this is all 2020 wines to get like We've got a great cross section. We kind of have larger winery with Chateau de Charme, you know, medium sized winery with cassava, and small winery with sixteen mile. Uh, this is great. Like, well, it just shows what twenty twenty was that that great vintage. Um, but I also love that we've got like warm climate grapes, like the Bordeaux varietals, and we've got the cool, like, cool climate grape with the Chardonnay, and which, it doesn't taste like a hot vintage. Which reminds me, um, before we close out uh, this evening today. You were supposed to also tell us where you were going, and oh yeah, you. Uh, I think you, <laughs> this I think, is called burying the lead. I think you got a little chubby over this one. Uh, I'm off to Burgundy at the beginning of June, so I think you're very happy about that. Yeah, it was one of those things where, like, I have a tiny baby in my house, and the email came into my inbox, and. I don't even think I had a chance to read it before I ran downstairs to ask my wife, uh, we have a baby in the house. Can I go away for a week? See, Burgundy is, a, is, is an interesting because I think, I think you're going to come away with a lot from that. I hope so. I mean, it's, it's, it's the thing where, but I don't think, I don't think a week or I, what, five days is it? It's five, it's five days, but I'm going to be extending the trip. But I don't, I don't, I don't think, uh, a week in Burgundy gets you. All the knowledge you need, or okay, even, but, or okay. even a third of the knowledge you but need. But this is okay. But this is why I'm so excited about you going to the Loire Valley. Uh, and I know we mentioned it on this podcast in the past. Yeah, I keep telling you to go back if you are new to the podcast. Go back to listen to past episodes. When I went to the Loire Valley last year, I was looking for inspiration because I've been to Burgundy now. Um, this will be my fourth time in in Burgundy. And every time I go to Burgundy, I leave inspired because I feel like I'm looking at a time machine at the potential of Ontario. Like, you know, I imagine this must be what a scout for a professional sports team feels like when they see a prospect down the road. Where, like, I taste the Chardonnay in Saint-Aubain and I'm just like, yeah, like 30 years from now, Niagara will be able to do this in spite of our cold winters, in spite of this. I taste the Pinot Noir and it's just like, okay. We might not be Jeffrey Chambertin, we might not be like Bone in Niagara, but like at least we're playing in the same league, you know? When I went to the War Valley, I did not leave with that inspiration, but I only went there once. Like I'm excited for you because I'm hoping that when you come back from the War Valley, you'll have that inspiration that we need to like really see where we fit. Well, I've, and, I've been once. I went. I went once before. And, and let me throw this up by saying, like, this isn't me throwing shade at Cabernet Franc, the War Valley, or anything. I just I truly believe the Cabernet Franc from Ontario is better than most of what I tasted in the Loire Valley. So when I when I went the first time, uh, and I, I may have said this, I was not looking forward to Cab Franc. I wanted to taste the other 
varieties of the region. Sweet Shannon. And uh, I found some really great Cabernet Franc. And if you if you go to my my YouTube channel and look up uh, Nerlu, which was uh, which is a fantastic, like an absolute, and even even uh, our our friend at Cabernet Franc Chronicles, Allison, yeah, um, she was like, "This is really good." So obviously she's she's tasted it as yeah. well. Uh, and then there's one called uh, l'oublige or l'obligé. I'm not sure which. I'm dude. Sure. I hate to say this, but your French is actually getting better. So, uh, and that one's not out at the time of, reco- of recording this podcast, but it will be by the time it gets out into the world. How about that? Cool. Uh, so, uh, l'oublige is actually another great uh, uh, Cabernet Franc, and I also was very happy to learn that they make Gamay in that area too. So um, I, I found some really great wines while I was there. I'm still not convinced that the Loire makes my favorite Cabernet Francs, but when they when they when you get a winery who wants to make a modern Cabernet Franc, yep. they hit it out of the park. I, I'm excited for you know I'm actually like I love feeding off the energy of other people when they get excited about something and it's just like i'm looking forward to when we reconvene after travel because like like we said at the beginning of this podcast we've been working ahead a little bit so by the time you're listening to this michael will have already traveled i will probably be on a plane or very close to on a plane to do that and um we will share what we've learned and get right back to it so thank you for listening to this long rambly podcast um all of the wines that we tasted tonight are definitely recommended by Two Guys Talking Wine. We've got the 2020 Cassaba Reserve Meritage, but Andre, who tasted it separate of Michael, recommends the Cabernet Franc as a better pick. The 2020 Cabernet Franc and the 2020 Eculus from Chateau des Charmes, stunning elegant versions of what Bordeaux varietals can be in Ontario. And since uh, Andre was recommending one over the other, I think uh, I would I would go with the Cabernet Franc over the Eculus. I would take the Eculus over the Cabernet Franc. Well, there you go. But both... I both think, are good get wines. Both, get both. But I believe the Cabernet Franc, you'll find a lot more... In my opinion, you'll find a lot more uh, elegance in that wine and more along the lines of what you'd want than the Eculus, which I think does not have the longevity that uh, it should. I think it sneakily does have the longevity, but you'll have to keep listening to this podcast for a decade when 10 years from now we open an Eculus and we're just like, hey, Michael, remember 10 years ago? I don't know why. I'm only going to be like 50, 10 years from now, but I'm talking like I'm 80. But he's, remember, gonna, but he's going to feel like he's 80. He's got a kid. 10 years ago when we talked about that Eculus? Let's see who was right. And then you'll probably still refuse to admit that you were wrong, but like that's just part I of the I know reason. I won't be, but that's okay. Anyways, we've got the uh, 2020 um, Civility and Rebel. Which I think also we split on. Yeah, Andre's re- pick is the Civility. It's, I'm I'm it, all over the Rebel. Um, but the cool thing about it is, like I know I say Burgundy, 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 Burgundy when I talk about Chardonnay from Ontario. I think the cool thing about 2020 is these are distinctly Ontario. They've got the reflection of is that it? warm summer. They've got the, the acid... They're they're not as austere as a lot of the Burgundy wines. There's a cross between let's go California Ontario because there's 100%. a little richness to them. Hundred percent. But you got that Ontario acidity. I'm Andre Pru from AndreWineReview.ca, which I will be trying to update over the next few weeks. But having a baby in the house makes it difficult. Uh, follow me on social media at Andre Wine Review. 
Your turn, Michael. I am Michael Pincus of MichaelPincusWineReview.com. I've tried to make it so that it's The Grape Guy, so you can find me actually at TheGrapeGuy.ca, The Grape Guy on Twitter, The Grape Guy on Instagram. Unfortunately, Facebook is not as friendly to me, so it's still Michael Pincus. It's okay. That means your grandmother won't be able to find you. I don't understand that. Only old people use Facebook, Michael. Oh, is that what it is now? Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. And who's using Twitter these days? Uh, oh yeah, isn't that wild? So that's this whole separate story. Like, so like NPR and PBS have both left, and uh, I think C- I think CBC's in the crosshairs next. Oh, see. Anyways, uh, Google NPR and Twitter if you remotely care about the story because it's wild what's happening on the internet right now. Anyways, um, good night. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes. Two Guys Talking Wine is produced by Jim Ray, Adam Duran, and Ken Little.